by that. If you have a Bible or a device, go to Genesis 40, and uh, I've titled the sermon today, Bad into Good. God is a specialist at turning bad, what seems bad to us, into what he knows to be good. I was in kind of a reflective mood uh, this past week. Friday marked the 35th anniversary, the 35th anniversary of probably the most important day of my life. I call it the day that God got my attention. You have a day like that in your life? I've shared the details with you in other sermons, but the truth about June 20th, 1979, is that it was a disastrous day. I was one of the victims in a drunk driving accident out on the West Coast, where as far as I know, everybody else was killed. And I came away with a couple broken teeth, some scratches on my forehead, aches and pains, but walked away. Reflecting back on that day, I have to say that I can attribute much of the good that has happened in my life since then to that day. The accident gave rise to a strong sense in me that I needed to leave home and go off to Bible college. Like I said, God had my attention. It was at that Bible college that I surrendered my whole life to Jesus Christ. It was there that I got discipled by someone. It was there that I met the young lady who would become my wife. It was there I sensed God's call to ministry, that I joined a church planting team. And it was there that God began to cause a desire to be a pastor to bubble to the surface of my heart. I can trace all of those good things back to that one bad day. You probably know one of the most quoted verses in the Bible is Romans 8.28. You know it? And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. God works all things for good. I believe it. I've lived that. <laughs> Paul wrote that, and I wonder if Paul had stories like my own story in his mind when he did write that. I'm almost certain he had the story of Joseph in mind, because it sounds what he wrote sounds so similar to Genesis 50, verse 20, where after everything that had happened to him, Joseph looked at his brothers and said, you know what, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Turning bad into good. That's what God does. God is a specialist at taking an ugly, broken situation and through his divine power and sovereignty and creativity, turning it into something beautiful. That's what God does. That's really the theme of my life, and perhaps the theme of yours as well. It's certainly the theme of Joseph's entire life. We're going to see that play out more today as we pick up Joseph's story where we left off last weekend. For sure, a lot of bad had happened to Joseph, right? We're learning about that. We heard how his brothers hated him, despised him, even to the point of contemplating killing their own brother. 
Then they decided instead to make some money off of him and sold him to a bunch of traveling merchants who were headed down to Egypt. In Egypt, we saw him get falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and get thrown into prison. And so the evil done to Joseph was mounting. But God had a plan for turning all of that evil into good. Joseph's task was to remain faithful, right? No matter what, to bless those around him, no matter where he found himself, and to trust in the sovereignty of God over his life. So let's pick up his story. There he was, in the slammer, right? Behind bars, thrown in after being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And yet, being in prison, he once again gains the favor of his overseer, due to God's favor on him, to the point where he was even put in charge of the other prisoners. Imagine that. <laughs> hey, guys, you pay attention to this guy, okay? He's over you guys now. He's one of the prisoners. He's a fellow inmate, and he's in charge. But the jailer has so much trust in this particular prisoner that he turns the affairs of the prison over to him, and all he has to worry about is his food, I guess. And so that's where Joseph is. Now notice what transpired next, Genesis chapter 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. That's Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. That's important. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended them and they continued for some time in custody. So the first thing we see in this unfolding saga of Joseph's life is a divine appointment. Do you believe in divine appointments? I sure do. You know, when I think back on, on God's plan in my life, I believe that he worked through that horrific accident to get me to a Bible college on the other side of the country because he had some divine appointments planned for me there. There was a guy I needed to meet, my RA in dorm one, who would show me how to walk with God. No one had ever really done that for me before. I needed to meet him. I needed to meet some other guys who were there. I needed to meet a young lady from Virginia and fall in love with her who would become my wife and become the mother of our children. I believe in divine appointments. Do you? You ever look back on your life and say, oh man, God did that. God made that connection. God brought this encounter together. Well, for Joseph, he needed to be in prison so that later on he would meet a certain fella who would be sent there because he had allegedly committed a crime. The story tells us that the king's baker and the king's cupbearer were accused of a crime. It doesn't tell us what. Perhaps they were accused of conspiring together to poison the king, but we're not told. In any event, they get thrown into the very section of the prison where Joseph was. Well, one night, they both had dreams. And when they woke up the next morning, they were disturbed. You ever had a dream that was just kind of unsettling to you? And you woke up in the morning, it's like, what was that all about? And should I attach any meaning to it or just file it away? Well, that's where they were at. And they asked Joseph if he could help them at all. And by God's wisdom and God's revelation to Joseph, he was able to interpret for them the meaning of their dreams. 
Through the dreams, God was very specifically revealing the fate of each of those two guys. In three days, the cupbearer would actually be restored to his position, serving Pharaoh every day. But the baker, mm, not so much. He would end up being hanged. And so it came to pass exactly as Joseph had interpreted the dreams. Now, Joseph had made a request of the cupbearer. He said, look, when you're serving Pharaoh again, when you're restored to your position, remember me. (laughs) Remember me, and if you could, speak a word for me to Pharaoh. I mean, you're going to see him every day, right? Speak a word to him on my behalf. Let him know he's got a prisoner down in the prison, down in the jail cell, who is an innocent man who was falsely charged, and maybe he'll release me. Speak up for me. That was his request. Pretty simple, right? Yet verse 43 says, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Bummer. Joseph, Joseph's hopes of being released were sinking every day that he didn't hear anything back. You realize he was the victim of a forgetful friend. Have you ever hoped that someone would remember you or speak up for you or advocate for you and but then it didn't happen. Hey man, when you talk to the boss, uh, the boss about that project, remember to put in a good word for me and how hard I've been working on it because I could certainly use a raise and a promotion. And then they totally forget. Well, if you've ever been in that situation, you know something of what Joseph must have felt. So nothing was said, and Joseph languishes in prison for two more years. But then one day, Pharaoh has some dreams. The king of Egypt has some troubling dreams of his own. He dreamt that seven skinny cows gobbled up seven healthy cows. He woke him up in the middle of the night, troubled him, fell back asleep. He dreamed, dreamed a second dream that seven sickly ears of grain swallowed up seven good, healthy ears of grain. And when he got up in the morning, he was disturbed, and he's looking around saying, can someone tell me if these dreams mean anything? Since he was Pharaoh, maybe he said, and if someone doesn't, heads are going to roll. I want to know what these dreams mean, and that triggers a memory in the cupbearer's brain. He's going, hey, I know a guy. We were cellmates in prison a couple of years ago. Dreams were his thing. I had a dream, and he told me the meaning of it, and it came true just like he said, and that's right, I was supposed to remember him and speak up for him. Shoot! (laughs) But now's my chance. His name is Joseph. And so Pharaoh summons Joseph, and Joseph gets a shave and gets a new suit of clothes, and they bring him before Pharaoh. Pharaoh repeats both of those dreams to Joseph. Verse 25, Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. Yes, you had two dreams, but they mean the same thing. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The dreams reveal God's plan to bring seven years of plenty on the land, followed by seven years of famine. And then Joseph said to Pharaoh, he said, look, you you need to hire somebody. You need to hire someone who can spearhead a massive food storage program during those bumper crop years 
so that there will be plenty of grain when the famine hits. He advised Pharaoh, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh stepped back and said, hmm, I need a discerning and wise man to hire. He's looking around at his officials, all of whom had failed to interpret the dream for him. (laughs) Hey, anybody know someone who fits that description? Verse 39, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, well, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And so it happens again, this pattern that we've seen in Joseph's life, right? Where he is, uh, evil is done to him, this time he was forgotten. He stays faithful to God despite that, and then God elevates him and promotes him. This time to second in command over an entire nation, and you know how old he is? 30. That's an astounding thing. That's an astounding promotion. And so it all comes about as Joseph said that it would through his interpretation. The years of plenty come. Joseph oversees the storing up of tons and tons of grain during those bountiful years to prepare for the lean times that were predicted to come, and they did. And the famine came, and it came with a vengeance. But because of Joseph's expertise, because of Joseph's favor from God, Egypt was ready. Verse 56 of chapter 41. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. So this was not some local or regional thing. This was broad-based famine, whose effects were felt all the way up in Canaan. And that's where Joseph's family still lived, up north in Canaan. Now, you know that nothing motivates people to get off their duff like an empty stomach, right? Well, look how Genesis 42 opens. When Jacob, that's Joseph's dad with all the sons, when he learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? What are you guys just standing around looking at each other for? Go do something, right? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten, note that, ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's kid brother, with them, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Now that's a telling statement, isn't it? That's a revealing statement. Benjamin, of course, was Joseph's younger brother from the same mother. Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, who actually died in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. Joseph loved his younger brother, Benjamin. But you know, with Joseph out of the picture, Benjamin had become dad's new favorite son. And I get the sense that perhaps dad didn't trust his other sons to take good care of him. You get that sense? For good reason. So Jacob keeps young Benjamin at home and then sends all the other ten down to Egypt to buy food. Now what happens when they get down there is very interesting. 
Chapter 42, verse 6 tells us that when they arrived, they were indeed brought before Joseph. Now, they didn't recognize him. This is 20 years after their last interaction with him, and people can change in 20 years, right? Their appearance can change. They did not recognize Joseph. And it says they bowed themselves down before him with their faces to the ground. The dreams came true right here, right now. They thought that when they sold Joseph down the river that they were crushing his dreams, but you know what they were doing? They were actually making provision for his dreams to one day come true. Here they are bowing down before this man who is their brother, but they don't know it. Notice how Joseph responds. It's kind of puzzling. He recognizes them. It's like, it's my, my family, my brothers. But notice what it says. It says, he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. He actually accused them of being spies. Hey, I think you guys are spies, sent from a foreign land to check out our vulnerabilities during this famine here in Egypt. The brothers, of course, say, no, 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 no. <laughs> we're not spies. We're, we're a family. We're from up in Canaan. There's 12 brothers and our dad, Jacob, and they lay it all out for him. And they plead with this powerful ruler who they don't recognize as their brother to believe them and sell them some food so they can take back home and live. But what Joseph does next is very interesting. He administers a series of tests. 42 verse 15. By this, he said to them, by this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. They had told him, we have, there's 12 sons, we have a young brother who's not with us. You, you're going to have to bring him back to me. So send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. What is Joseph testing for? What is it that he wants to find out? I think several things. One, he wants to know, is my brother Benjamin still alive? They'd mentioned him. But he knew his brothers had gotten rid of one of Jacob's favorite sons, right? <laughs> had they also done something to Benjamin? He didn't know. Plus, no doubt, he just wanted to see his kid brother. Bring him to me. A second thing I think he was testing for and that he wanted to know is, is here's ten, his ten brothers. Is there a leader among them? Of the ten, would there be one who would volunteer to go get Benjamin? Of course, that would involve facing dad with the prospect of taking Benjamin away from home, away from his father, maybe never to return, right? Who would rise to the occasion? Well, guess what? Nobody raised their hand. Crickets. Silence. And you know what Joseph did? He said, okay, heck with you guys. He threw them all in prison for three days. I think probably to figure out, what do I, what do, I do next here? Three days later, he brought them back out, and he presented with them with another test. Okay, then, if no one is going to volunteer to go, will one of you volunteer to stay if I let the rest of you go back? That one will be a pledge that you'll come back for him and bring Benjamin with you. I think by this test, Joseph, Joseph intended to reveal, has there been any change in you guys, in your hearts? Are you still the same guys who are willing to betray a brother? 
If one of them would volunteer to stay behind in Egypt, Joseph would know that a level of trust had been developed among his brothers, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll stay because I know you guys will come back for me, right? <laughs> but again, nobody raises their hand. So Joseph just picks one. Simeon, come with me. He has him bound up, puts him in custody. Then he, he does allow the others to purchase grain and be sent off, except he's got something else up his sleeve. He secretly arranges to have their purchase money, the money they'd given him for the grain, put back into their knapsacks to see what they would do when they found that out. Why did he do that? Well, there's one other thing he wants to know. He wants to know this. Is money still more important to you than family? That's what he wants to know. Would the brothers end up deciding, once they discovered this money in their sacks, to keep it, even though it wasn't theirs to keep? Surely when that ruler in Egypt discovered that he hadn't really been paid, he would take out his fury on who? Simeon, who was there with him in Egypt as a pledge. Would they allow that? Or would they humble themselves and return and go back to Egypt and present the money to Joseph, knowing that they would face some questions that they didn't have any answers for? Surely with this test, Joseph was remembering how willingly these same guys had sold him 20 years before for a handful of silver coins, right? Money is more important than family. He wanted to know, had their value system changed? Or were they the same guys that they were 20 years ago? This test was designed to reveal that. Well, the brothers do find the money in their sacks. They're very distressed. What to do, what to do, what to do? Do we go back or do we keep heading on home? Well, you know what they did? They kept heading right on back home. When they got there, they showed their father all the grain that they'd purchased, and he was probably excited, right? Hey, we can live now. Then they showed him the money that had been, they'd found in their sacks, and he's probably like, oh, no. Weren't you supposed to have paid that? for? How did this all happen? And I'm sure he was filled with anxiety and then maybe grief as he realized, you know what, this could cost me my other son, Simeon, who's still there in Egypt. Now I'm going to lose him too. Well, Reuben, the oldest, makes a, a bid to his father, well-intentioned, to trust him to take Benjamin back to Egypt so he could get Simeon released. But Jacob says no. He doesn't trust his old, oldest son. He doesn't seem to trust any of his sons. So you know what? Not much has changed in 20 years. Trust is still low. Suspicion is still high. Father Jacob still has a favorite, and he's seemingly willing to hold on to him and sacrifice Simeon. Well, you guys follow me? This is a long story with lots of twists and turns in it. Stay with me. Eventually, they consume all the grain from Egypt, right? I mean, eventually the sacks dim diminish and it's depleted and it's like we, we ate everything. Now what? There was only one option that presented itself to them. We've got to go back to Egypt to get more grain. But that ruler in Egypt said, don't come back without your youngest brother. Oh no, what do we do? <laughs> 
Well, they have a discussion about it. Their father's like, no, don't take Benjamin. Finally, the boys prevail upon their father, and he grudgingly relents, saying this in 43.11, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. (laughs) Try to get on his good side, you know, ingratiate yourself with him. A little balm, a little honey, some gum. I mean, it's always good to take some spearmint gum and (laughs) give it to someone you're trying to please. Some myrrh, some pistachio nuts, mmm, some almond joy bars. Take it to this guy and take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps that was an oversight. Take also your brother. Benjamin here, and arise, go again to the man. (laughs) May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back to your, and may he send back your other brother, that's Simeon, and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, then I am bereaved. What do you think? Is that faith? Or is it just kind of resigning himself to fate? You see, Jacob is being tested too, isn't he? What's most precious to me? Now, it's at this juncture that the fourth oldest son, Judah, remember him now, he steps forward and to his father, he basically pledges himself as a guarantee to dad that he will bring Benjamin and Simeon back. And if he fails to do so, he says, then I will bear the blame forever. So, With that pledge, Jacob, that's the tipping point. Jacob says, okay, okay. And they head back down to Egypt for the second time, this time carrying Benjamin along with them. So, then there was this joyful reunion, and everyone lived happily ever after, right? Not so fast. (laughs) When they're all being brought before Joseph, being prepared for that, the brothers are nervous. There was that money issue that they knew that was going to come up, and they didn't have any good explanation for that. What would this ruler do to them this time? So Joseph is informed, you have some guests. You have some visitors. It's that big family from up in Canaan again coming down for more grain. And so interestingly, he has a big meal prepared for himself and for them, and it's a meal that's filled with emotion. Listen to the account. 43, 26, when Joseph came home, for lunch apparently, they brought into the house to him the present, talking about his brothers, the present that they had with them, and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is my old man still alive? And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. There's the dream again being fulfilled, right? And he lifted up his eyes, and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Picture the scene. My brother. And he's overcome with emotion, but he doesn't want to show us. He's like, I've got to excuse myself, everyone. And he, 
he goes to his chamber, his bedroom, and he just dissolves into a pool of tears. We don't know for how long. Maybe the food is getting cold out there. But finally he pulls himself together. Verse 31, then he washed his face and came out and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. (laughs) Food solves everything, right? Man, can't you just feel the intensity of that moment, the emotion? Joseph still hasn't revealed to his brothers who he really is, his true identity. He wants to, but he's not yet satisfied that they're changed guys. To determine that, he's prepared one final test. So they finish eating, and and after the meal is done, Joseph receives their gifts. He receives receives the payment for the grain. He loads them up with sacks of grain to take back home, but unbeknownst to them, he has his attendant take his own personal silver goblet and stuff it deep into Benjamin's knapsack. Then he sends them off, and they're probably feeling pretty good about things, right? Whoo! We dodged a bullet there, guys. We got Benjamin, we got Simeon, we got grain, we're heading back home to dad, life is good. Until a steward overtakes them on the road and says, hey, who stole the ruler's cup? And they're like, cup? You know anything? We don't know what you're talking about. They search through the sacks, they fish the golden or the silver goblet out of Benjamin's sack. And the brothers are speechless. They're like, oh, (laughs) we're done now. We're history. Curtains for us. We got nothing. What are we going to do? They're in an extremely vulnerable position. They're basically at the mercy of Joseph. They're all brought back to the palace. No excuses are going to be accepted. They fear for their lives. Joseph looks at them gruffly and says, you know what? Guilt is determined here beyond reasonable doubt. We know who the criminal is. It's Benjamin. Your punishment will be that Benjamin has to stay with me and be my servant. The rest of you can go. And Judah, in a dramatic moment, steps forward and he makes a stunning offer. He basically sticks his neck out. He tells Joseph, who he doesn't know is Joseph, the whole story from beginning to end. He spares no detail. The whole, the whole thing. And then he pleads with Joseph for Benjamin's life and also for his dad's life. Here's what he says, 44 verse 30. Now therefore, talking to Joseph, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy, Benjamin, is not with us, then as his life is bound up in that boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol, the place of the dead. For your servant, talking about himself now, your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please, he's pleading, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers, for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? What's Judah's offer? Substitute me for him. Punish me in Benjamin's place. Let me bear his guilt for allegedly stealing your cup. I'll take the blame I'll pay the price for his sin so that he is free to go home and live his life 
and so that our dad won't die of sorrow and grief over having lost another beloved son. Can you see that something has changed inside Judah? Remember, years before, he had been complicit in the betrayal of Joseph. He'd been a leading voice in the chorus that led to Joseph's being sent down to Egypt, but now he's the lone voice offering to surrender himself and his freedom in order to return Benjamin to his dad. And so as a result, we, we see Judah now emerging as the leader of the clan, the spokesperson for the rest. Well, next weekend, what we're going to see is that this moment, this moment, with Judah lovingly offering himself as a substitute and a sacrifice for his brother. This was what Joseph was waiting to see. This is what he was looking for. This was the sign that would be a trigger for him to say, now I can tell my brothers who I am, because there is change here. This was what broke him and opened the floodgates. And it's, it's an extremely tender and emotional scene, and we'll explore it next weekend in depth. But you know what? When I think about how this story is unfolding, I have one main question. I see what Joseph's doing. I see what the brothers are trying to do. But my question is, what was God doing? What was God doing in all of this? What was he up to? What I've come to understand is that God was doing what Paul said that God is always doing. Working all things together for the good of those who love him. God is a specialist, as I said, in taking what appears to us to be bad things and turning them into what he knows are good things. As Joseph would say later to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for what? For good. So I ask myself, well, what are the good things that God is causing to come out of all the evil we've seen in this story so far, the hatred, the betrayal, greed, lies, being forgotten, falsely accused, imprisoned. Where's the good? So I started a list. I stopped at 11, but there are more. I want us to just briefly notice some of the good things that God was doing. First, God was doing the good thing of keeping his covenant with Abraham, wasn't he? Great grandpa. Remember, God had promised Abraham that he would have innumerable descendants upon the earth. And he promised Abraham that they were going to live in oppression for 400 years before God would free them to go to the promised land. So through Joseph's story, God was making good on his promises to Abraham. Isn't that true? He was fulfilling his covenant to him, guiding the circumstances to fulfillment. Second, God was doing the good thing of preserving the lineage of Messiah. I mean, really, there's no better good than that so that we would have a Savior. If Jacob's family perishes in Canaan because of the famine, if Judah doesn't make it, if Judah's son, Perez, dies in the famine, then the Messianic line is at risk, right? God was working all things for the ultimate good of preserving the line that would end up in Jesus of Nazareth. Third, God was doing the good thing of saving human lives. How many think that's a good thing? Is it good to save lives? By orchestrating 
Jacob's ascendancy in Egypt and giving him that high position and equipping him with administrative skills and experience and leadership qualities, God was ensuring there would be sufficient grain in Egypt to save many lives once the famine hit, and that's a good thing. Fourth, God was doing the good of revealing, think about this now, revealing his glory in Egypt, a predominantly pagan country where people worshipped many gods. They worshipped the sun and the moon and the Nile River and everything else. But when Joseph went there, and because God was with Joseph, Joseph became a testimony everywhere he went to the power and wisdom and the goodness of the one true God. Pharaoh got to be exposed to that, Potiphar, the other officials in Egypt, the people were all blessed to know more about the one true God because of Joseph being there among him. Does that make sense? God was revealing his glory to the people of Egypt. Number five, God was doing the good of restoring Jacob's family. And let's be honest, Jacob's family was a mess. I mean, you read about the things that took place prior to Joseph. I mean, this is before he, Joseph even came on the scene. Deception, immorality, revenge, murder. You read about Genesis 35, 36. This was a family that was coming apart at the seams, that was fragmenting. But God was working through all of these situations to repair this family, to heal wounded hearts, to restore harmony. God cares about families. And he was doing a good thing. Number six, God was doing the good of preparing that same family to become the people of God. You see, this wasn't just any old family, was it? This was the family, the chosen family who would become the special people of God, a nation of Israel, that, that nation that would experience God's divine deliverance through the Red Sea, the Exodus, that would receive his laws, that would inherit the promised land, that would give birth to the prophets, and eventually produce Messiah. Within 400 years of relocating down to Egypt, they would number 2 million strong from 70. That's a lot of babies. Babies growing up and having babies. And God was working to make sure all of that would happen so that he would have a specially chosen people who would be a lighthouse for him to the rest of the world. That's a good thing. Number seven, God was working the good of blessing the obedience of Joseph. Man, this does our hearts good, I think, <laughs> to know that God does indeed bless obedience. It sure didn't look like it at times. It sure didn't feel like it when Joseph's sitting in the prison. It's like, this is blessing? Here I am trying to live for God and be obedient, say no to temptation, and this is what I get. Sometimes we think, do good, get good, right? But you know what? God was indeed blessing Joseph's faithfulness, even in those times, in many ways. First and foremost, by being with him, his presence with Joseph, giving him favor with his superiors all along the way to the point where he ultimately got elevated to second in command in Egypt. God was blessing Joseph's obedience, and it does our hearts good to hear that, doesn't it? Number eight, God was doing the good thing of humbling proud hearts. That's a good thing. Doesn't feel good. But it's always good when God humbles proud hearts. Many people were humbled in Joseph's story. Can you think of them? 
His dad was humbled. His brothers were humbled. I mean, remember laying prostrate out on the ground before him. Potiphar was humbled. Potiphar's wife was humiliated. The jailer was humbled. The other prisoners who were ordered to submit to one of their fellow inmates got humbled. The cupbearer was humbled when he realized he'd forgotten about Joseph when he promised he'd remember him. Even Pharaoh himself was humbled. Lots of good humbling going on, and God was doing it. It's a good thing. Have you learned this yet? Our flesh hates humbling, but our spirit craves it. That's true. It's a good thing for proud people to be brought low, and God was doing that good thing. Number nine, God was doing the good thing of transforming resentful hearts, too. Remember, Joseph's brothers hated him. Oh, they hated him with a passion. Remember when they saw him coming in the field, what did they say? Here comes that dreamer. Let's get rid of that guy. Once and for all, they resented everything about him to the point they wanted to kill him. For sure, one thing God was doing through all of this was softening their hearts towards their brother. We'll see that more in depth next week. Number 10, God was doing the good of demonstrating the proper use of law and grace. Man, I wish I had time to get into this. You say, what was Joseph doing with all these tests and things? It seems like he was toying with his brothers, doesn't it? Kind of playing with them. I don't think that's what he was doing. You know what I think he was doing? I think Joseph was an extremely wise man, and he was putting on a clinic for how to use law and grace in a way that transforms hearts. If you're a parent, you'd do well to study in depth Genesis 42 through 44. I mean, it was like it was like sun and frost, sun and frost, sun and frost until their hearts finally cracked open. It's ama- it was brilliant what Joseph was doing to affect transformative change in the hearts of his brothers. It's a good thing. Proper use of law and grace. Number 11, God was certainly doing the good of prefiguring the gospel for future generations. Now, I've tried to show you in the last couple weeks how Joseph himself was a picture of the favored son who would come one day, right? Who would also be betrayed and sold in order to save the lives of other people. Joseph, as I told you, I believe is the true and better, excuse me, Jesus is the true and better Joseph for sure. But here... In this part of the story, we get another foreshadowing of the promised one. Think about it. Judah. Judah made a pledge to his father and was willing to lose everything in order to see his family restored. But centuries later, one of Judah's descendants would also sacrifice everything he had in order to redeem a family for his father, right? And his name was Jesus. Just as Judah stood before a powerful ruler and took the burden of his brother's guilt upon himself, so his greater offspring would also stand before a powerful ruler named Pilate and willingly take the weight of all of our sins upon himself. And even as Judah offered his own life as a substitutionary sacrifice, a ransom to set his brothers free, don't you hear in his voice echoes of his greater son? the lion of the tribe of Judah, 
who didn't just offer himself, but actually laid down his life as a ransom for setting his brothers and sisters free forever. I'm telling you, Jesus is the true and better Joseph. He's the true and better Judah. It is only by trusting in Jesus' blessed name that people can be saved and forgiven and changed and transformed. That's good news. Well, mark it down, please. It is God's intent. It is God's desire. It's God's prerogative to work to turn evil into good. In Joseph's life, in my life, and in your life. But never was that intent put on display more clearly than with Jesus when God turned ultimate evil into ultimate good for our salvation. Well, as we finish up this morning, I just want to ask this question. How many of you would say, Steve, really, God has given me a strong faith to believe that he has a plan in my life and he's working that plan even when things are difficult and I don't understand. How many of you feel like, I have a faith like that. I've been given a strong faith like that. Praise God, many, many of you. How many of you struggle at times, though? It's like, really? You know, why am I in prison? This stinky, smelly place, and here I thought I was trying to obey God, and God, what do you do? I mean, do you ever struggle and just need God's grace to look past those circumstances to the bigger plan? I do, I do. And sometimes we just need God's strength to remain faithful, right, where we're at, just to be faithful to Christ. I don't understand it all, God, but I know I'm supposed to bless the people who are around me, stay faithful to you, and look for you to do good through my bad situation. Well, I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come right now, and maybe you're in that situation today, or you know someone who is, and you would benefit from being prayed with by one of our prayer partners. You know, I I just, I don't understand what I'm going through. I want to see the good in it. I want to be able to look past the scene to the unseen and trust God. I need my faith strengthened. Or I just need to be faithful in what I'm going through or what my friend is going through. They need to be faithful. You can come and be prayed for. Many, many people have come already this weekend because I think this touches so many. We're also going to do something um, that we don't do real often. I'm going to ask several of our elders to come right now. And uh, they're going to stand, some on my right and some on my left, because we're going to also make available to you this morning the opportunity to be prayed for if you are battling a chronic illness or a physical condition of some sort. And they're going to anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord and pray that God will heal you. You say, well, is that in the Bible? Well, it is. Listen to James chapter 5. Is any among you in trouble? Let them pray. That's good advice, isn't it? Is anybody happy? Let them sing songs of praise. That's the outlet for joy is praise to God. Is any among you sick? It's not talking about like I have a fever blister. It's talking about a a chronic pain and debilitating condition. Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. 
If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Our elders do this um, by personal request, but from time to time, we also just open up a time during a celebration for you to come and have our elders anoint you with oil and pray for God to heal you, and that's this morning. So would you stand? And these next few moments, there'll be some quiet time, then there'll be some worshipful singing and music, but you can come and be prayed, by, uh, prayed for by our prayer partners or by the elders in our church for healing. I hope you'll avail yourself of that.